Hey everyone, I'm Ty McCarthy, and welcome to Can We Pause It, the podcast where we watch a movie just to press the pause button and try to figure out what we just watched. Not only the what, but the why behind what we just watched. If you can believe it, here it is. It's the second episode. And if you haven't already done so, now would be a great time to go back and check out the first one if you want to know more about why I began this project uh, to begin with. So go ahead and pause it right now. (laughs) See what I did there? Uh, But for real, before we dive in, I just want to say you may hear this uh, weird rumbling or uh, humming in the background. That is because I now live eight stories above an L station. So I've done my best to record when a train isn't approaching. But you know what? It is what it is. So just think of it as giving CTA realness. Seeing as this is the second episode, today is dedicated all to the art of the sequel. For some, a sequel is a cherished continuation of a classic story. For others, they're just blatant cash grabs, so it's definitely a mixed bag. But from Genesis to Exodus to the Iliad and the Odyssey, the concept of sequels has been around for a very long time. So then why does it feel like we're seeing so many more of them recently? Did did we just run out of new stories? Did we finally hit the bottom of the story barrel? And why does it feel like we are stuck in this eternal holding pattern of only seeing sequels, prequels, and reboots? Is it because we are? Or maybe we're not. Maybe the numbers don't back up what we're experiencing, and we're just experiencing the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, or uh, frequency bias if you're nasty. Uh, you know Bader-Meinhof. It's uh, when your friends buy a reliable and stylish Kia Sorento hybrid, you start seeing the reliable and stylish Kia Sorento hybrid at every intersection. That's frequency bias. According to the site stephenfiles.com, of the 100 highest grossing movies between 2005 and 2014, 60% of them were sequels. And in that same period of time, the number of sequels rose from 9% to a whopping 22%. So that means nearly a quarter of all movies we're seeing right now are sequels. So I, I, I guess that settles it then. Uh, well, that's, that's our show then. Uh, come back next week when my guest will be Governor General of Canada, Mary Simon. Our theme music today was composed by BJ Lederman, and this episode was produced by... Just kidding. So hold on to your butts, Paul Harvey. There is more to the rest of the story. Settle in as we explore the art of the sequel. Act 1. Sequels, sequels are no fun. Interior, Dylan's at 75th and Quivira, evening. I had a traumatic experience with sequels in my early childhood. So, back in the day, renting a movie from the grocery store instead of a video store somehow just hit different. I don't know if it was cheaper or maybe it was just more convenient, but as for me and my family, we were grocery store VHS rental people. And at this particular Dylan's, you would make your selection by finding a 3x5 laminated movie poster and take that to the rental checkout, which was next to the floral department. My perennial favorites were a Mickey's Christmas Carol, even if it wasn't Christmas, and a man with a golden gun, so I had very eclectic taste at a very early age. But at this Dylan's, which now sits vacant in a once-thriving strip mall in Shawnee, Kansas, standing on its checkered pattern tile floor, awash in fluorescent lights, I learned a very important life lesson. Just because you liked the first one doesn't mean you're going to like the second one, for it was on this occasion that I had chosen for my rental Return to Oz. I had no idea the Pandora's box that I was about to open. Beyond giving me nightmares on end for years to come, and giving me plenty of material to talk to my therapist about later, (laughs) just kidding, it was the 90s, nobody went to therapy, I, I was left haunted by this nagging question of how, in any way, 
shape, or form was that movie related to the technicolor musical spectacular of its predecessor, The Wizard of Oz? And that one singular question, along with that movie, have haunted me ever since. Now, you might think, oh yeah, a sequel. That's a very easily recognizable thing. And one would be correct, because any work that extends a previous work generally counts as a sequel. That being said, there is some argument to be had that just because a story can continue doesn't mean it should continue. There's a lot to be said on the industry side of things of what goes into reviving and continuing an intellectual property or IP. Some movies have their sequels planned. They're written alongside the first one. Others, studios wait to see the box office returns before a sequel is approved or or greenlit. Frankly, I don't know that much about the industry side of things, so perhaps later on, even this episode will have its very own sequel called The Art of the Industry of Sequels. For now, we're just going to take a look at the ingredients needed to knead into the dough of a sequel. So if you're writing a sequel, one of the first things you're going to need to ask yourself is, what are those essential elements from the first movie that should be included in the second movie? To me, these ingredients fall into two simple categories, visible and invisible. Movies that we consider good sequels have strong bonds like yeast with these elements between movies. Likewise, movies that we consider to be, quote, bad sequels have very weak connections. Obviously, Return to Oz shares some obvious visual connections with The Wizard of Oz. Same characters, check. Same setting, check. Same natural disaster initiating event, check. Same talking chicken. Wait, what? Okay, so the similarities end pretty quickly, but does it share any of the second category? Any of those not-so-obvious invisible connections? Because you, you don't really see these per se, you just sort of feel them. These invisible connections help form the framework of a story. It gives the story boundaries and definitions, and so it can say a lot without saying a word about what the movie is and is not about. So when the first movie sets its boundaries, you you would think that the other ones would follow suit and use those same boundaries as a framework. But sequels are fighting this this internal battle. They also need to be their own thing as well. It's a delicate balance of tipping your hat to the source, but also going in a new direction. And the invisible connections of a movie are ways that you can hat tip without tipping over. It's sort of like how genes work. Grandkids sometimes look more like their grandparents than their parents, but it's all still the same DNA. I think I just blew a metaphor fuse, so just bear with me for this whole thing. Some of the most visible, invisible connections are genre, tone, mood, motif, and theme. Weaving these in and out, sometimes strong, sometimes faint, create a new balance that lets sequels stand on their own. And don't worry if you weren't paying attention in Mrs. Planker's ninth grade English class, because I got you covered. We're going to take a look at these and see how they are woven in between Return to Oz and The Wizard of Oz. Looking at genre first, we can easily tell that Wizard of Oz and Return to Oz are in two different genre categories. Genre is the larger window frame that a story is viewed through. They all have their own rules and regulations, but those rules and regulations help us, the viewer, process the story and help the story move along. For instance, if you're watching an action movie like James Bond and suddenly James Bond uses a magic wand to defeat this dragon at high noon at this dusty street in the West, you're probably going to be scratching your head like, what am I watching? 
So genres help keep the audience grounded and invested into the reality of the story, so it helps support that suspension of disbelief. Although Return and Wizard fall under the same larger umbrella of fantasy, under more scrutiny, we see that not all fantasy movies are the same. Every larger genre has a whole host of subgenres that get mixed and matched, and different elements are louder and fainter from other genres and other subcategories to make each story new and exciting. And over time, we can track that and see how a genre evolves. Here, our source falls under musical fantasy. The sequel falls under adventure fantasy. Musicals have their own unique conventions that allow for the suspension of disbelief to maintain itself even while all that singing and dancing is going on. Because have you ever wondered why it's no big deal for characters to sing and suddenly break out into hard and soft choreography? That's because the singing and dancing isn't literal singing and dancing, it's because it's expressing the story through song and dance. Adventure movies have their own conventions too. The most common type is called The Hero's Journey which starts in the relative safety of a normal slice of life, then there is an evil presented that threatens that safety, so the hero has to leave in order to protect the town or restore balance, and maybe he meets some new friends and learns a life lesson along the way. So right from the get-go, they are lined up from two different starting lines. When it comes to tone and mood, again, Wizard and Return zoom past each other. Tone is the overall tone of the movie. Oh wait, huh. Um... Tone sets the tone for the movie. Oh, wait. You know, defining a word without using the word is very, very hard. Let me try again. Tone is how the author views the piece. There we go. What are the feelings the author is feeding into it? E.g., the tone of House of Dragons is humanity without hope. The tone of Rings of Power is humanity with hope. In other words, it's how the piece views itself. And pro tip, if you've ever been confused about using IE or EG, here's how I remember it. EG means for egg sample. There you go. When in doubt, always go with an egg pun. Mood is simpler. It's the feeling you get after you've viewed the movie, watched the episode, or finished the book. A sequel should invoke those same qualities. Theoretically, you should be able to seamlessly watch House of Dragon and Rings of Power without missing a beat from their predecessors because the tone and mood should be similar. The tone of Wizard is upbeat and optimistic, whereas the tone of Return is drab and melancholy. Similarly, the mood of Wizard is bright and hopeful, whilst Return is confused and uneasy. Similarly, themes or what the piece says more broadly about life in general or the overall message it conveys and motif the recurring elements that help support and reinforce the theme should also connect between stories. The Wizard of Oz, the movie, was written during the Great Depression with themes of times may suck now, but keep hope. The thing you most need, you already have. The theme is reinforced by Dorothy meeting three characters who find out in the end the thing they needed most, they already had. Return to Oz was adapted for a screenplay in the decadent 1980s and says, um, technology bad? No, that can't be right. Um, things are never as great as we remember? No. Absolute power corrupts absolutely? Oh, boy. Uh, and that 
theme is reinforced by everyone being turned into stone or a random object or imprisoned into a mirror? Okay, so you shouldn't have to strain yourself or jump through hoops to find a theme or motif. Genre, tone, motif, theme, and mood are just some of those invisible connections that sequels have at their disposal to link themselves to a first movie. Another is style. Color is a great example of an invisible connection. But Thai, colors are very visible. Ah, yes. But even though it is visible, color can be used to invoke more subtle changes. E.g., say a character is only wearing red, then character goes on her adventure and learns more about herself. And then, near the end, she starts wearing blue. It's never mentioned or addressed, it just happens. We, the audience, subconsciously see that, and that reinforces the cycle of change that the character has had. Or perhaps the majority of the scenes are set at night, and then the final scene is in broad daylight. Those are some of the ways that color impacts our interpretations. A classic example of this is near the end of The Lion King, when it rains and it signals that change is afoot. Weather and seasons are other ways that show change and reinforce story elements. Wizard of Oz famously plays with color as a barrier between Kansas and Oz. It's actually doing double duty as a barrier between worlds, but also as a wow factor for that 1939 audience that might have missed the movie poster and thought they were just seeing another black and white movie. Return to Oz starts in color, goes to Oz in color, returns to Kansas still in color. Nothing changes visually. It is a huge missed opportunity. Huge mistake. Big. Even if both Kansas and Oz sequences are in color in return, it needed to have something new and fresh that still gave a distinction between worlds, or played with color in some new way that is still a hat tip to the original. But alas, it does not. I think I'm upset by this most of all, Scarecrow. The collective sum of the parts is a huge miss for me. Like, there are so many missed opportunities to tie itself back to the original, and yet nothing. Like, Return to Oz doesn't even attempt to leave us with a moral, a lesson, a message, a truth about anything. It is just purposeless and aimless. Dorothy does stuff and returns. Done and dusted. Presumably never to go to Oz again. Like, it could have at least made us feel something for when she leaves. When Lucy is told she can't return to Narnia, it is impactful because it drives home the bittersweet theme of growing up and ending the adventure of childhood. This is reinforced by scenes that fit to the larger narrative of growing up. Dorothy had a talking chicken, now she doesn't. That's about it. It could have spoken to the time and place it was written. Maybe it could have spoken to happiness being the simple and not in the consumeristic versus the fast-paced world of the 80s in which it was released. Smart movies find a way to connect the setting of the movie to the setting of the movie's release without being too preachy, or at least overtly preachy. One masterful example of this is Mank, how the subplot of the 1940s California gubernatorial election is framed perfectly against the 2020 world in which it was released. One can watch the movie and take away from it a surface-level meaning, but one can also watch it and realize that it's reflecting back to us how strong the role media plays in shaping our, our view of the world and our politics, and in framing specifically environmental issues. So it was in the 1940s with Hughes and Hearst. So it is today with Musk and Zuckerberg. Of course, movies can just exist without this macro narrative. Movies that are movies are just fine and dandy. But when you make a sequel and your first movie does have a moral and does have a life lesson and does speak to the time and place in which it was written, maybe yours should as well. Does that mean Return was locked into being another musical fantasy or was locked into expressing the exact same things as Wizard? Not necessarily, because like I said, sequels need to go in a different direction. 
But if you're going to do that, you need to reinforce other connections. Exceptions to the rule are what make movies and stories exciting and new. One of the best exceptions to the rules is Thor Ragnarok. It jumps into a new tone and mood from the previous two movies, but it still fits and is arguably one of the best Thors, if not one of the best movies in the MCU. But that is due in part to the slow evolution of MCU movies over its 20 plus movie timeline. If you watch just the Thor movies in order, it does kind of feel out of place because it is more whimsical, it's, it's more colorful than its predecessors. But when it's put into the larger order of Marvel Cinematic Universe films, where it falls 17th, you see that slow tonal shift and it's more natural than abrupt. Granted, there are a lot more connective fibers than just genre, theme, motif, and color. These are just a few of the invisible connections that bond sequels to a prior work. There are a whole host of context clues that are used to help expand the world and launch characters on new and exciting adventures far beyond the limits of the original. But how far is too far? Can you create a sequel that's so different than the original that it's unrecognizable? See, sequels are fighting this uphill battle, which probably accounts for our love-hate relationship with them. They take characters that we know and love on a new but same adventure. Too similar, and we're bored. Too different, and we don't recognize it. A sequel needs to have that balance of familiar and new. Sam Goldwyn of Disney MGM Studios fame famously said, give me the same, but different. Now, he was talking more about what makes people go see movies, not necessarily sequels, but he's onto something. Finding that balance of holding the charm of the first one all the while expanding the world is the quintessential existential crisis of sequels. They have to have a foot in the door of the old story while having their other foot in a brand new story. Humans are really good at finding connections. We find and make patterns and order our lives in an otherwise orderless world. We do this instinctively. We organize and reorganize our worlds to help make better sense of them. And with the lack of any external information, we will form our own connections and find our own patterns. Finding those connective tissues between two movies, whether it's purposeful, accidental, or implied, that's half the fun of watching a sequel. And sequels are a great starting point for anyone who wants to talk shop about movies because their source is the other movie. All the other lenses of film theory and film language can be discovered from just comparing one movie with its sequel. And I think that's why I've been so fascinated by the concept of sequels. They have to be both and. They have to be old and new. And we don't do a great job of allowing things to be two things at once. We are constantly wanting to remove any kind of nuance from life and take complicated things and, and put them into a single, simple, solitary box. But maybe that's why people don't enjoy sequels, because it doesn't fit into the box that they created for the first one. And maybe they aren't in two boxes at once. Maybe it's one box at two different times. Maybe it's chess, not checkers. Oh, geez. Maybe I've been way too hard on Return to Oz and fueled all my hate and malice of bad sequels into this one movie, when all it wanted to be was a fun escape from the summer heat. Wow. After all, Wizard of Oz wasn't the truest adaptation of Dorothy's first trip to Oz, and Return is just a, an amalgamation of story elements from Frank Elbaum's other novels. Huh. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the fundamental flaw of Return to Oz, that it, that it was only a sequel and branding only. It lacked any deeper connection to the source because it was a sequel to a movie that, that didn't exist. A grounded live action of Dorothy's first trip to Oz. And in the end, it rested too much on its laurels of culture familiarity and name recognition, and it was a forgettable release from Disney that was in a decade of finding its place in the world. 
uh, thankfully Oliver and Company was just three years away, and that would usher in the start of the Disney Renaissance. Discovering the connective tissues of story allows you to see what is important. After all, if that connective tissue shows up in both movies, then it must be important. So go watch a film, and then go watch its sequel. See what connective tissues are kept and reinforced. What's the same and what's new? The art of the sequel is living in that tension, making space for it to be the same, and still be different than the ones that come before it and after it. Act 2, Sequel Boogaloo, The Resurrectioning, Part 4. From Genesis and Exodus to the Iliad and the Odyssey, the concept of sequels has been around for a very long time. If it feels like we're in an endless cycle of only seeing sequels, prequels, and reboots, that's because we are. Wait a minute. Why does that sound so familiar? Oh, I know. I'm just feeling super nostalgic for the opening paragraphs of this episode. Ah, uh, remember when I said those words earlier? What a good time that was. Okay, where was I? Sorry, nostalgia is a really hard thing to overcome. As I alluded to earlier, we aren't just experiencing frequency bias. We are experiencing more sequels. But how did we get those numbers? To answer this, we need to leave Mrs. Plinker's English class and go down the hall to 7th hour math with Mrs. Golub. Basically, we're trying to find what percentage of movies are a sequel, but the total number of things filmed is incalculable. So we need to make some assumptions. For all indents and purses, we're going to look at only wide release motion pictures from the big studios. This eliminates those direct to DVD or made for TV sequels. The number of movies released per year varies over the decades and year to year. 2020 obviously being an outlier. A quick download of tables from Wikipedia confirms this to be true. And if it's good enough for Mr. Wikipedia, it's good enough for me. In a typical year between 2000 and 2022, 200 to 250 movies were released in theaters, give or take 50 or so for the ones that were released on streaming-only platforms. Thankfully, like I said, most of the heavy math lifting was done for us by StephenFollows.com. However, I did spot check his math, looking at five years between 2000 and 2022, hunting for sequels, and sure as you're born, his math checks out. Being surrounded by all this movie release data, I asked other questions. Like, what if you're a stan of an original IP, how long will it take for a sequel to be released? Unless you're Lord of the Rings and film all three movies at once, your movie is probably going to go through the normal hoops of the Hollywood system. Again, I'm kind of a novice at that side of things, so I know my homework is to find out if this matches the typical movie production schedule. But I did take a look at 1,700 movies that had sequels, and I took the original year it was released and compared it to the release year of the very next movie, e.g. Dr. No equals 1962 and From Russia With Love equals 1963, a difference of one year. And I didn't look any further in franchises, so I didn't look at the gap between From Russia With Love and Goldfinger, which happens to be 1964. This list of movies started in 1945 and went to the present, and a very clear pattern was emerging almost instantaneously. The average time between films was the same even if it was released in the 50s or the 2020s, three and a half years. More on that ish a little bit later. I imagine that's the normal turnaround time for writing, negotiating contracts, location scouting, filming, and post-production and the like, assuming that the studio reads the positive signs on the tea leaves and gives the green light close to the original film's release. Needless to say, there are a lot of moving parts to making a movie, but it is interesting that as different as the movie-going experience has been since the 40s, the gap between a first movie and its sequel has roughly been three to four years, except when it's not three and a half years. The problem with this is it's an average and it's an incomplete data set. 
plug more numbers in, the data can shift. With some more recent sequels, this actually extends the gap year to 3.77. This is due in part to the rise of so-called legacy sequels. These massive gaps between movies skew the numbers. These are movies like Tron and Tron Legacy, Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, Mary Poppins and Mary Poppins Returns, Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. Those are just a few of the movies that have huge time gaps between sequels. Interestingly enough, Top Gun Maverick just sneaks out ahead of 2017's Blade Runner as the largest gap between movies with 36 and 35 years respectively. There are a lot of sequels that are released a calendar year apart from their first movie, but I didn't see any films that had an Irish twin two movies released within the same calendar year. There could be one out there, but I just didn't find it. Let me know in the comments below, and don't forget to smash that bell icon. Oh, wait. Another interesting tidbit was 2001 gave us a higher amount of original IPs that later got turned into sequels compared to any other year. And oddly enough, even though they weren't direct sequels of the 2001 set of IPs, 2004 had a significantly higher amount of sequels than any other year. And yes, that's three years later. About 10% of movies that were released in 2004 were sequels, and this finding follows what Stephen Follows had as well. Hopefully my math checks out. For now, let's go back to Planker's class and talk about genre. Sequels come in a wide range of genres. Comedy, action-adventure, animated and kids, horror. Pretty much every genre has a sequel, except for one. One notable exception is the biopic, which is odd to me because a biopic appears to lend itself most naturally to having a sequel. Imagine we have the entire life of Dolly Parton in one movie. Her life is as big as her wigs, so it needs more than one movie. Movie one would be her origin story, her path to stardom, and her meeting Porter Wagner when she's singing La Vion Rose in an L.A. drag bar. Movie two, her rise to stardom, her solo career, the struggles with owning a amusement park, and owning her own musical empire. Movie three is just her in a lab finding a cure for COVID. I know at least nine people that would watch these movies. Another noticeably absent film that appears to be sequel proof is the Oscar winner. It is extremely rare for a sequel to outshine its predecessor and win an Oscar. Of the major award categories, it's only happened twice, The Godfather Part II and The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Return of the King won Best Picture, but its prior two movies did not, making it the only standalone sequel to win. Godfather Part One and Part Two each won Best Picture, with Part Three being the disappointment to its parents for only being nominated for Best Picture. For those who love trivia, you might want to take note of 1973's winner, The Sting. It's sandwiched in between both those Godfather wins. That would be a really great Final Jeopardy answer. Uh, or question, what is the sting? Full disclosure, I haven't seen the Godfather series, so I can only assume it's about a Nebraska family and their starting of a pizza chain and a struggle to gain market share in middle America. That, that sounds about right. I don't think it's cynical to say that sequels aren't going anywhere because they do make money. My only concern is the quality of the story. The top 10 highest grossing films of 2022 were all sequels. Top Gun Maverick, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Avatar Way of Water, Jurassic Park Dominion, Minions Rise of Gru, The Batman, Thor, Love and Thunder, Spider-Man No Way Home, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Whew. Of those movies, not all are of the same quality. But also, on the fan side of things, we love sequels because they give us 90 more minutes with characters and worlds that we love. We get to laugh and cry with these people, and somehow heartbreak feels good when you're watching them on screen. So where do you fall on the sequel spectrum? Do you love them or do you hate them? Or are you in between? That being said, sequels have been around for a very long time. From Genesis to Exodus to the Iliad and the... Okay, okay, you get the idea. They aren't going to stop making sequels anytime soon. Act 3. How to create a sequel without really trying. 
I mentioned earlier that there are a couple of genres that seem to be sequel-proof. Well, I used to think that there were movies that were sequel-proof too. A movie so sacred that no studio would ever attempt to make a sequel out of it. To some extent, that is true. Some movies we do collectively put on a high, high shelf, never to be touched again, lest the studio or an executive face the wrath of fandom. But yet, Return to Oz still exists. And I also mentioned before that genres have certain beats that they hit to, quote, stay within the genre. This gives us a shorthand or shortcuts for world building and to jumpstart a plot. Sequels, too, have certain qualities or framing devices that help cover events that happen between movies or reintroduce a new audience to the world. Creating the perfect sequel is no easy task. There's a lot of pressure to live up to the magic of the first one. Plus, if successful, you can tee up even more movies. There would be no Return of the Jedi if Empire Strikes Back hadn't done well at the box office. But remember, they have to be the same, yet different. It's kind of unfortunate that second movies often get lost in the sauce. History tends to remember the first of something more than the second. The amount of things named after John Adams, our second president, pales in comparison to the things named after our first president, George... Um... George Glass. Even in sports, who even remembers who won the second Super Bowl? Besides Michelle Kwan, how many silver medalists do you know off the top of your head? And it's always who's on first and never who's on second. We have to do two things at once with a sequel. We have to be a good story and be successful at the box office. So let me get on my ladder and climb up to that sequel-proof shelf, see what's up there. Hmm. Okay, let's see. Oh, yes, this one will do very nicely. You're invited to relax. Let us pull up a chair as the writer's room proudly presents your sequel, The Truman Show 2, back on the airways with a vengeance. Um, we'll, uh, we'll uh, workshop that title. Also, full disclosure, at time of print, according to my latest Bing search, there was no TS2 in the works. Let's take a look at some of the sequel types that TS2 could take. First up, the instantaneous sequel. This type of sequel picks up the exact moment the prior movie left off, or within a few hours. This helps us, the audience, know that we didn't miss anything between the two movies. Great examples of this are The Incredibles 2 and The Lord of the Rings. So for TS2, our first scene would literally be the first moments Truman steps out of the dome and begins his quest for Sylvia. And maybe once outside, Truman needs to go back into the dome to his former abandoned house to get more information about her whereabouts. After all, you don't build a dome the size of downtown Los Angeles if you don't want to get your money's worth. Sounds simple enough, right? Well, one complication with this would be that the world of the first movie is very 1998. So is Truman stepping out into that world or an updated version of that world? We need to do a bit of retconning to smooth over any of those rough edges. Retconning, for those of you that had dates to prom and homecoming in high school, is the process of retrofitting world rules to retroactively apply for continuity's sake. With that out of the way, what is the simplest path forward for Truman? I think if Truman finds Sylvia right out the gate, it loses all of the emotional stakes for his character. It takes all the wind out of his plot sails. His connection to Sylvia, the extra, after all, is the butterfly wing that flapped that started the hurricane of him wanting to leave the dome to begin with. With Sylvia standing outside the door waiting for him, the movie is just Truman being a fish out of water, just lurching from one scene to another without any emotional drive or relational umph to get us from one thing to another. You'd have to essentially create an entirely new set of obstacles for him to overcome, which could be done, but granted, then you risk alienating the fans that want to see their Truman that they grew to love and care about. So how do we wrap this movie up? After a series of near misses and a subplot of Truman dealing with his fame, we end with Truman rushing into the arms of Sylvia, and the final frame of Truman stepping into Sylvia's house as a bookend to him stepping out of the dome. Next is the real-time or legacy sequel. Movie time and real-time are two different clocks. 
Very rarely is a movie aware of its sense of time and its self-contained 90 minutes with all of the events of the movie happening in real movie time. 24 is a great example of real-time storytelling. However, a legacy sequel is aware of itself enough to know that movie time and real time are different, but hustles things up so that real time and movie time are on the same page. Some examples of this, like I said, are Tron and Top Gun. Also, Indiana Jones. Legacy sequels allow for us to see the same actors play the same characters, but dealing with new problems and new situations that weren't around decades ago. How has Truman's world grown and changed since he left the dome? It could be fun to explore some of those alternative histories subtly throughout the movie, like a bit of retconning would help explain why there aren't cell phones and why the world looks more like 1998 than 2023, because Steve Apple was working on the tech for the studio and didn't have time to invent the iPhone. And then once Truman left the show, Firefly never got canceled because there was a huge void in the TV schedule thanks to Truman's departure. Oh, I can hear Jeffrey Wright saying now, what if? Now, because there's so much ground to cover, the movie won't be able to answer all the questions about what Truman was up to for the last 24 years, but it can sprinkle in some details. So we need enough to justify the nostalgia. This could be done with the central conceit of Truman and Sylvia getting ready for the 25th anniversary spectacular, which would be taking place inside the dome. After all, you don't build a dome the size of downtown Los Angeles unless you want to get your money's worth. So we have a scene of Truman talking to Marlon, but suddenly the cafe turns into a set and Truman can't find the door to escape, and awakes in a panic from his nightmare. Truman, who has largely stayed out of the public eye, is gearing up to make a public appearance again, and this could highlight Truman's struggles with PTSD, anxiety, and depression, and how he's coped with his literal Truman Show syndrome. And because we are in an era of movie making that is darker and grittier and more grounded than the late 90s blockbusters, this could be a perfect vehicle to explore the effects of fame, society's fickle relationship with fame, and more importantly, the importance of therapy. And we could end with Truman reconnecting with the people and things he knows to be real. The Cantarl C, Cantarl V sequel. This is my least favorite type of sequel because it's least imaginative. There are some good copies, but overall it's just copy and paste plot points, changing out a villain and a setting, and it's the exact same movie. But some good ones are like Home Alone and Home Alone 2, and Austin Powers 1 and 2. Now this structure for this Truman Show doesn't really lend itself well to this type of sequel, because Truman isn't contained in the dome anymore, we don't have that same journey of self-discovery for him to go on. But I suppose that Truman could have some Rick and Morty-esque reveal that what he thinks is really the real world is really just a larger dome on top of that dome. Because if you have the money to build a dome the size of downtown Los Angeles, why not build a bigger one? I don't think this is the best path for the sequel Truman Show 2 Back on the Airways with a Vengeance to go down, but I just thought you should be aware of it. This next contender, though, does lend itself very well. The reboot sequel. While a reboot technically isn't a sequel, they do share a lot of the same elements. A reboot allows for a fresh cast to come in and Doctor Who themselves into the characters. The James Bond series has been doing this for decades. Here, Kristoff, having learned nothing with Truman and still wanting to play God, secretly had a second child born in the Studio Dome. After all, if you build the dome the size of downtown Los Angeles, you might as well get your money's worth. And thus ensues the journey for this new Truman to go down. Meanwhile, our Truman watches in horror and is now the Sylvia type to help save this new child from the life of a fake reality. And it could be set in that same 1998-style world, but all the actors are new, playing characters from this first one. This reboot would be helpful because after Sonic 2, Jim Carrey decided to retire. So we would need a new Truman to play the old Truman in our movie about a studio making a new Truman. The other side of the coin is the true boot or true reboot. These act like the events of the first movie never existed, like how Ghostbusters Afterlife erases all memories of Ghostbusters 2016 that we had. 
These can wreak havoc on canon and Wikipedia pages because the urge to sprinkle in callbacks and references to the first one that really never existed. With some smart writing, you could fix some plot holes like the live-action Beauty and the Beast did. Essentially, it'd be the exact same story, but with the new, shiny, futuristic overlay. Instead of a 1998 world, it's a 2022 world, with Truman being watched by billions on all those futuristic see-through devices. Okay, I'm sorry, I've got to pause it on futuristic tech with see-through screens. You can't read it. It makes no sense. Why is that even a thing? It's like ordering at Subway with their new giant Eat Fresh Refresh stickers on the sneeze guard. You can't even see the vegetables or the ad because it's it's so blurry. Your eye doesn't know what to look at. It's absolutely, positively the most asinine thing I've ever seen. Ugh, I need to calm down for a second, so let's let's just do an ad break. Hey, Ottawa Sinners fans, it's lunchtime. Stop what you're doing and head into your local... Oh, God. Subway. Because right now, you can get the Subway Sub of the Day for just $6. Come see what's new with our Subway Eat Fresh Refresh series. They're the same subs, just with new names. Subway. Eat Fresh. Ugh, gotta pay the bill somehow. Where were we? Ah, the Tangential sequel. This is one of my favorite ones. It's a great way to tell two or more stories all at once. The events of the first movie are playing out in the same time as this one. So we can start with stock footage of Truman being the astronaut in the bathroom and end with him leaving the dome. After all, we've spent that much money on building a dome the size of downtown Los Angeles. We might as well get our money's worth. But the main characters in this movie are the side characters in the original movie. So we follow a stagehand or other extras during their days. Sylvia has a list of several recruits she's trying to get on board for her free Truman campaign, but now we can see it from their side of things. Now, the elevator snafu is framed as a purposeful sabotage by Sylvia and her infiltrator network. It could even highlight the conflicted emotions that Meryl and Marlon are having about being Truman's friend and wife, but also being paid actors. These tangential sequels offer a great way to develop and flesh out static characters, while still being in the world that was created by the first one. One of the best examples of this is The Lion King 1.5, which tells the story of Timon and Pumbaa, what they were doing while we were watching the first half of The Lion King. The Deconstruction. Remember when I said keeping the same tone between movies was important? Ignore all that. The Deconstruction smelts the elements down into liquid story ore and sees what organic shape it takes. No gimmicks, no CGI, just a grounded, real-life narrative about a person stuck in a giant dome the size of downtown Los Angeles, unaware that they're being taped 24-7. TS2 could show Truman post-TV, dealing with all the mental health issues associated with the world, watching his every move, the sudden isolation he feels away from his town and his, quote, friends, and that sense of betrayal at Merrill and Marlin, who were supposed to be his besties. He literally had a society built around him, and now he's citizenless. A stranger in the strange land of Southern California. No house, no money, no job, no identity, no family. He feels powerless. He's technically corporate property. So what if Kristoff sues him for breach of contract? And it's Truman against the machine power of Kristoff and his connections in Washington. After all, you don't build a dome the size of downtown Los Angeles without having some connections. The tagline for this movie poster would be, It's truly the most depressing movie you'll ever see. Finding hope when all the systems are against you is a grounded, sad path that this sequel would take. The non-sequel-ster. Get it? Non-sequester? Wow. Tough crowd. This is another least favorite type of sequel for me, because it basically just uses the first movie as a springboard, as a literal jumping-off point, and can take any direction from there. Troll 2 and Home Alone 4 come to mind. 
if you're a fan of Pitch Meaning, they have a great send-up of Home Alone 4. Literally anything is possible in this sort of sequel. It could be set 100 years in the future. Truman has left the dome, and we are seeing how a dome the size of the Inland Empire is rusting away. It draws you in with the promise of being the same, but is so drastically different it makes absolutely no narrative sense. Be warned, because only disappointment will follow. Next up, the prequel. Have you ever wondered what zoning permits Kristoff got to build a dome the size of downtown Los Angeles? What was Truman's childhood like? How much did an extra get paid? What else is happening in society that caused us to pour all of our resources into one thing? A giant dome. Who hurt Kristoff so much that it gave him a demigod complex? If you've ever asked these kind of questions, then the prequel is right up your alley. Young Sheldon, House of Dragons, Star Wars Episode 1, 2, and 3, or is it 4, 5, and 6? I'll dive into these establishment questions. Now, prequels, especially in action movies, have a fatal flaw. We know who lives and who dies in the next movie, so take that with a grain of salt. It should focus on the growth of the hero and lessons learned from battling their inner demons, and less so about who wins the fight. Last and least, the spiritual successor. This is the rarest of all, but it is the holy grail of sequels. It looks completely different. It may feel completely different. Heck, it may not even be branded as a sequel, but is still in the apostolic movie line of succession. These are really tricky because they could be intentional, they could be unintentional, and there's a lot of vagueness and wiggle room to debate that question. One of the best types that I know of, Pixar's soul is a spiritual successor to Inside Out and how Elemental still seems to fit as a trilogy with those two other movies. Now, I haven't seen any official posts from Pixar to say that they are connected, but they definitely feel like they are sequels. So unlike other forms of sequel that rely on story and plot, these tend to have super strong connections in genre, tone, and theme rather than characters or setting. So what would this look like for Truman Show 2? Well, it may already be out there, kind of like how... Black Mirror is the spiritual successor to The Twilight Zone. It could be yet to be made, and it could be harder to spot, because they probably don't have a dome the size of downtown Los Angeles in them. So there you go. That's a definitive, inconclusive list of all sequel types there are, and a bit of the pros and cons of each one. Those are merely molds that sequels can fall into. The true number of sequels and sequel types is only limited by our imagination. That may sound a little too sappy reading Rainbow of an ending for you, but you don't have to take my word for it. At the very least, if you're working on a story, you know that there are at least seven different types of story for you to brainstorm to help start your premise. What sort of sequel do you like the best? Have you noticed these types of categories play out in your favorite film series? Which of these sequels do you think works best for Truman Show 2 back on the airways with a vengeance? Do you have a movie that is so sequel-proof? Well, run it through these types of variations and see what stories pop out. You may be surprised to find that you actually like what you see. Epilogue sequel sequels hurt someone. Part of me wishes that this trend of sequels would end because it feels like they're squeezing out a market for new and original stories, and there is a perceived lack of quality. All I'm saying is just spend two more weeks making two more drafts, and you'd have a much better movie. And don't get me started on the inconsistency of sequel titles within a franchise. Here's looking at you, Fast and Furious. There is a certain melancholy or bittersweet feeling I get when I finish a really good book. You know that moment when you realize there's only 10 pages left? Only 10 pages left to be living with these characters in this world, in this space? You almost slow down your reading to savor each page and each sentence. Sequels offer us a first-class ticket back into those beloved worlds. Too often, if they don't share enough qualities that made us love the first one to begin with, they're going to end up feeling flat and hollow. It's a complex balance of being its own thing and still hitting the beats of the first one to make it feel like it's in a series. Too often our disappointment is because sequels don't quite have enough strong connections when style or tone or, or whatever it is to make it feel like it's a part and connected to its first movie. 
I spent a lot of time confused about what Return to Oz was. Maybe it was just a grounded, realistic version of The Wizard of Oz. Or maybe it was supposed to be a grounded reboot of a series based off the books as the source and not the 1939 movie. So who knows? And I didn't even mention that sequels that I thought knocked it out of the park, like Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shacked Me, and Sherlock Holmes 2, A Game of Shadows. Those were all great second movies that were one-off sequels that accomplished the beats of the first one, but also made themselves feel like they were their own unique movie. Arguably, Empire Strikes Back is the gold standard of middle movies, and it broke the mold about the sequel formula. Be them good, be them bad. We are in an era of sequels, prequels, trilogies, and reboots. And that's... that's okay. Maybe the moral here is that the story is never finished. There is always something more to be learned, something new to see, and something new to be discovered. And we need to embrace our inner Natasha Bedingfield and just accept that the rest is still unwritten. Just like a sequel, we still have time to change and improve ourselves. We don't need to wait three and a half years to make those improvements. We get to start that now. As it turns out, we aren't scraping from the bottom of the story barrel after all, but the barrel is deeper and wider than we ever thought or imagined. So next time you roll your eyes at a new IP coming that feels like an unearned sequel, remember that the story still goes on, even after Happily Ever After. And take a look at it. See what kind of style of sequel it is. Not every movie sequel is a winner, and you know what? That's okay. And even things that we didn't think need to get sequels do get sequels. Nicole Kidman at AMC Theaters recently announced a sequel performance to her pre-movie performance, and technically that is on the big screen. So would that qualify for a best live action short at the Oscars? At any rate, I hope you learned something and had a bit of fun. Thanks for tuning in. Come back next week when my guest will be former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and we talk all things Juno Awards with the voice of Jacob Tutu, Billy Rosenberg. Um, is that right? I'm starting to think that this was written for Dave Coulier. This episode was produced, edited, and written by myself, Ty McCarthy, with theme music actually composed by my friend J.D. Weinstock. If you'd like to continue the conversation about sequels, send me an email at canweposit at gmail.com or shoot me a message on Instagram at canweposit. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to your podcast so that you'll be able to hear when the next episode is out. Until next time, I'll hold the popcorn and you hold the talking.